great to talk to you. Sorry that uh, we can't be together face to face. I'm sure that uh, time is just around the corner. But now this morning, I'm going to talk to you out of the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation 1, verse 12 to 18. I don't know if you've ever done one of those word association games where someone says a word and then you say the first thing that comes to mind. I've noticed that oftentimes when you talk about the book of Revelation, the first thought that comes to mind is of terrifying beasts and the end of the world and supernatural horror films, Armageddon, 666, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, and so on. Well, you'll be pleased to know that this talk isn't about any of that stuff this morning. Uh, that's obviously all very uh, important material. But um, the word revelation is actually a Greek word, apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse from. And that word simply means uncovering or unveiling. The whole book of Revelation is an uncovering. It's a peek behind the curtain written in a, a very particular style of the reality of what's actually going on in God's plan as human history plays out. And of course, of events that are yet to come as history unfolds. One writer describes the revelation, the apocalypse, like this. I really like this definition. He says, it's a vision of heavenly secrets that can make sense of earthly realities. The first five words of this book tell us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation, an apocalypsis, an unveiling given by Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. And that's why I've chosen to speak from these words this morning. At a time like this in human history, when things seem confusing and completely out of control, we need to know what this book teaches, that Jesus is in complete control. He fights our battles. He has a plan, and that it's unfolding exactly as he would have it. And it involves you and, of course, me as well. Now, the backstory to the verses that we're going to read are that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's been exiled uh, to, by the Roman authorities to a prison island called Patmos. And uh, John and all of the other Christians in the Roman Empire, they were, they were no stranger to hard times. All of the other 11 disciples had been killed, beheaded, crucified, or worse. And the fragile early church in Rome had come under the scrutiny of the evil, deranged, bloodthirsty Roman emperor, Emperor Nero. Christians in Rome in those days were just poor and destitute outsiders. They were an obscure offshoot of Judaism. But they spoke of a new kingdom and of a coming king. And this obviously rattled Nero and uh, in the summer of AD 64, a huge fire broke out in Rome, and it consumed up to three-quarters of the city. Nero blamed the Christians, and so he rounded up as many of them as he could, and uh, he tortured them in the most brutal way. He covered them with animal fur, and he fed them to wild dogs and to lions. And at night, he impaled them, set fire to them to light up the city. It really was the most brutal spectacle and the most awful persecution. Now, 
I say all these things because when you read the book of Revelation and you read about beasts who rise up over cities with blasphemous names all over them, who sound like dragons with sharp teeth who war against God's people and of an antichrist and of Christians being martyred in multitudes, it's important to bear in mind that this is the kind of world that John is seeing and writing into as well. And so one Sunday... In the midst of all this, whilst in a time of worship on the island of Patmos, John suddenly has a vision. He, re- he hears the voice of a trumpet, and he opens his eyes, and he sees this vision of Jesus. And it's this vision that I want to talk to you about today, because I believe that if we get something of this vision into us, especially at a time like this, It'll strengthen us to remember that Jesus is supreme and in control over every situation, every empire, every beast, every turn of history. He stands victorious and he is for us. Let's read this vision that John is having. Revelation 1 verse 12 to 18. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is a a beautiful picture of Jesus. It's obviously written in a very symbolic way. And I'm praying that as we unpack that symbolism, it causes you to lift up your eyes and be strengthened in all that he is and to know that he's big enough and mighty enough to rescue and to save you in every way. And so I've called this message... All eyes on Jesus. Because in a world that seems loud and chaotic and scary and vies to suck you down into its faithless attitudes and opinions and cause you to be downhearted and afraid, we must look up to the reality of the revelation of Jesus. So let's do that. The first thing we see in verse 12 is this picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands. It says later on in the chapter that these lampstands are the seven churches, seven very important and significant churches in what is modern-day Turkey. Now, in this type of Hebrew uh, literature, which is written in a very symbolic way, The number seven represents completeness and wholeness, which is partly why you see the number repeated many times throughout the book. And so it stands to represent, for example, when Jesus says he holds the seven stars, that he holds the entirety of something. It's language that would have made sense to people in that culture. And look what Jesus is doing. 
He is standing amidst the seven lampstands that represent the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. And what is the church? It's us. Right now, in your living room, scattered across BCP or wherever you're watching this, Jesus is with us. He's in our midst. When we gather as his, in his name, there is never a time that he isn't with us. Think about that. That's one of the reasons the Bible talks about him being an ever-present help. It's why Jesus himself often said to people, the kingdom is near to you. If you're far from Jesus, or even if you feel far from Jesus, you aren't. He's in the midst of his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And look at how he's dressed. Verse 13, he's got a long robe on and a gold sash around his chest. This is the clothing of priesthood and royalty. He points people to the Father like a priest, and he rules over them like a king. Verse 14, his hair is like white wool, like snow. His eyes burn with fire. He has the white hair of one with infinite and divine wisdom and gravitas and the penetrating insight of one who is sovereign, not only over the seven churches, but over all of history as well. He sees into any situation and circumstance that you might face, and he says, I see you, I know you, I understand, and I'm with you. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, we read, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Can you imagine just how poignant those words would have sounded to a Christian in Nero's Rome? They're just as true and relevant for us now, even as a, a pandemic and a lockdown bears down on us. He is with us. Verse 15, it says, His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, precious metal that is glowing from the furnace. When I was a young boy, I used to go and visit the gold mines in Johannesburg. You can do that. And you can go and view the gold smelting process. They'd kind of make you stand back about 40 feet as they opened the furnace to take out the pure gold. And as the oven door opened, there was this blast of white light and brilliant heat and light that came out. And then they'd remove the gold and its brilliance filled up the room and it would make you want to recoil. This is like the feet of Jesus. They symbolically represent his power and steadiness and solidity. This is not someone who can be pushed over by anything. Jesus is in control. And when he's near to his people, we are safe. And he is always near. It says his voice is like the roar of many waters. As a coastal people, we know what the sea sounds like on a stormy day. It's not gentle and quiet and placid. It doesn't lie down at the sudden threat of surfers entering in. It's loud and it's awesome and it rolls over the whole beach and it changes the landscape. And on a loud stormy day, you dare enter it with reverence and respect. Jesus' words are awesome like that. 
They shape the cosmos and they bring things into being and they command demons to flee. And when he says live, things live. When he says to Lazarus, rise up out of the grave, death retreats and releases its grip. When he tells the stores to calm, the waves die down, the wind obeys him. When he says it is finished, then you better believe that what he set out to achieve on the cross is fully and completely done and cannot be reversed. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Those words had power. He was saying that everything that we had done to isolate ourselves and everything we'd built up to separate ourselves from God had been torn down by his mercy and his sacrifice. And in so doing, it says, Jesus subjected Satan and his acolytes to open ridicule. Whenever I read those words, perhaps it's just my sense of humor, I imagine these strapping angels just laughing out loud, belly laughing, as Jesus emerges from the tomb, thinking, they thought a cross would hold him? This glorious one who has ruled and reigned from eternity past and through whom and by whom and for whom all things were created? They thought that death would somehow hold him down? What were they thinking? In verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Tells us later on that these seven stars represent the messengers or the angels of the church, whatever they are. Some people say that they are literally angels that guard over the church. That, that would make sense, but whatever they are, they represent something of the rulership and government and protection of the worldwide church and the way that God relates to his people. And look where they are. They are held in his right hand. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with what? With my righteous right hand. Some trust in military defense systems, some trust in virus vaccines, some trust in Boris Johnson or Joe Biden. That's totally fine. But over and above all these things, we trust in the name of Jesus. And he holds us, the church, forevermore and without threat in his right hand of power and victory. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Let me, let me quote Andrew Wilson on this one. He asks, Have you ever noticed how earthly rulers, military generals and so on, they come with a message on their mouth and a sword in their hand? That's what metaphorically military generals do. But not Jesus. He comes with messengers in his hand and a sword in his mouth where you'd expect to find a message. Because his word is the only weapon he needs. He doesn't need to rule like the generals of the world with the sword or the tank or the nuclear bomb. Jesus rules through his word. Because his word is a sword. His word that brings judgment and blessing and peace and restoration with a gospel of good news for anyone. His word is the only weapon he needs. And his word, friends, is the only weapon we need. 
When I'm facing battles personally, I have to discipline myself to remember his word and preach to myself that he holds the seven stars, that he walks among the church, that he's dressed in clothes that represent his priestly and kingly status, that he got up out of the grave, that he ascended the heavens, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he is the one who ever lives to intercede for and advocate for us, that he's removed all of our guilt and shame and clothed us in righteousness and peace, and he's coming again to do away with every empire, institution, and person who stands against his universal rule. And that makes me feel better. Get the words of Jesus into you. Read them, digest them, sit under them in the local church, right here at Gateway. Write them up and stick them around your house if you have to, but get them into you. They are the sword of God, and they pronounce life and freedom to every captive, and they slay every enemy. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as if dead. This is, this is John talking. This is the close personal friend of Jesus, one of his disciples. I don't know about you, but I've never fallen down as if dead upon seeing one of my close personal friends. Something has clearly changed for John between the Jesus who he knew who went to the cross and the Jesus he now sees who is crucified and risen as king of the whole cosmos and every angel and all authority is centered on him. It's not surprising that he falls down as if dead. I imagine you or I would fall down as if dead if Jesus revealed himself to us, apocalypsed himself to us this morning in all his glory. And that's what will happen on the last day anyway, when Jesus reveals himself fully to humanity. Every single knee will bow. Because, and this is the point, he is above everything Right now, whatever is ailing you, broken relationships, money troubles, fear of the future, fear of death, US elections, COVID, whatever, he sees you and he knows you and he is near to you and he has overcome it all. When we one day see Jesus face to face, it will be a delight and it will be awesome. And there I suspect, like John, we will fall face down and we will be overcome by his glory. And worship and adoration will spring from our mouths. But look what Jesus does. That right hand that holds the seven stars, that rules over the churches, that mighty right arm of salvation, that same hand he reaches down and he touches John tenderly and he says, do not fear. That's fundamentally the message of the gospel. Because of this mighty king and what he's done for you, do not fear. Don't look at your circumstances, your lockdown, those rulers of the earth, this virus, even death. Don't look at any of it with dread. All eyes on Jesus. Because the one who stands amidst the lampstand of the church, he who has eyes that see every situation in his fullness and understands it all, he is big enough to simultaneously hold the church in his right hand and to place his hand on your shoulder personally 
If you don't know him yet, I I invite you this morning to ask him to place his hand on your shoulder and to speak life and freedom to you. The Lord says, do not fear. How is that? Well, let's read on. He says, I'm the first and the last. I was there at the beginning, and I've seen and determined the end, and I've been alongside you all the time in between. And I can say to you that nothing in this world can overcome you or take you out of my right hand. Therefore, fear not. And then, possibly one of the most significant things that Jesus ever says of himself. Verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. In order to bring life to us, the living one died. He tasted death. For three days, he lay in a tomb, and then he rose up to glorious life again. If you were a Roman Christian in those days, facing persecution and death for your faith, those words would mean such a lot. He's been there. He was dead. But he's the living one, and now he lives forever and ever, and therefore he can declare victory over death. And he says, because of that, do not fear. Death isn't in control. Death isn't the boss. Death doesn't call the shots. If our God is for us, who can be against us? As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, it's not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword, neither death nor life or angels or demons or the present or the future, not coronavirus. He didn't say that. Those are my words. There is no powers, no height, nor depth, nor anything at all that can separate us from the love of Jesus or bring any charge against us. This is why he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys. I couldn't get into this building this morning without my keys. And those keys let people in and they let people out of this building. Jesus has the keys. He can open the doors to death and Hades anytime and say, come out. He's done it before. Lazarus, come out. And when he has led you out of death, nothing and nobody can put you back in. Jesus has the keys. Whatever your situation today, and whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, this is the reality and the offer and the choice in front of you today as we turn our eyes to him. He rules over all of history, over all of creation, and over every single circumstance in your life. He is solid, secure, trustworthy, faithful. He's beaten the foe of death, and he sees you He knows the present and the future, and he holds the church in his right hand, and he knows the end. It's been apocalypsed to us, and if you know that you're in Jesus, that's a very good place to be. As C.S. Lewis said analogously, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. Therefore, we have nothing to fear Because he is the living one, the first and the last, he has a sword in his mouth that speaks absolute truth and life. When he says, fear not, so long as he's on the throne, and he will always be on the throne, we have absolutely nothing to fear. If our God is for us, who can be against us? All eyes on Jesus. And the fact that he now has the keys means that he can also remove you from any kind of living death 
that you may be facing as well, be that fear or addiction or faithlessness or persecution or trouble of any kind. And he can take you out of that dungeon and he can place you in the land of his hope. He's got keys. He can open every door. Victory over all that stuff is possible. Ask him, believe him, lift up your heads, all eyes on Jesus. Don't flinch or look away when circumstances shake you. Let him fill your gaze. He's the first, the last, the alpha and the omega. He's overcome every agent of evil. He's tossed death aside. He's the living one. He holds you in his right hand. He has his hand on your shoulder and he tells you it's okay. You've got nothing to fear. You can come to him this morning. You can know him and be known by him. Let me uh, pray that this would be your reality. Perhaps you'd join me in this. Jesus, thank you so much that uh, in these days when things seem like they're out of control, chaotic, things are bearing down on us, rules being placed over us, thank you that there is one who we can look to, the living one who was dead and is now alive, who lives forever and ever, and in you we can place our trust and you rule over all things, all situations, all circumstances, and you have seen the end from the beginning, and you know each and every one of us personally. And so I pray this morning that we'd fix our eyes on you, not be tempted to flinch and look elsewhere, but let our gaze be filled with your glory and your majesty and your power and trust in all that you are. Jesus, I pray that for anyone who is far from you or is yet to know you, that this morning there would be a change of heart as they look to who you actually are, the reality of our risen King. Lord Jesus, be glorified. Amen.